You're listening to Digital Divides, Season 3 of All Things Equal. I'm your host, Verity Firth. Technology is taking over more and more of our lives. It seems like there isn't a task that we can't invent a device or program for. The convenience of letting a robot take on our unwanted tasks is undeniable, but increasingly we are asking technology to make our decisions for us, to make decisions about us. Artificial intelligence. It's here now and it's deciding our futures. Algorithms can take huge quantities of data, more than any human could ever process, and make decisions in milliseconds. It's even judging whether people should go to prison. It's tempting to think machines will make unbiased decisions, but artificial intelligence is a human creation and is already showing the same prejudices as its creator. So we do embed values in AI all the time. It's impossible not to as a human designing a system. With the amount of errors that is happening, if they're just using algorithms, this is costing people. So 100% it needs human intervention. The biggest concern is that we become really reductivist about problems that are very complicated, that are very human, and we look for technological solutions to political and social problems. On today's episode, why AI isn't fair. Our producer, as always, is Dan Butler. I'm out near Blacktown in Sydney's west. I've come to meet Shane. Shane Mason. I live at uh, Hasselgrove, New South Wales. I got a letter around the 19th of December in 2018 um, that basically just said that I had to verify some income um, from about six or seven years ago. Shane used to receive a Centrelink payment to support him when work was patchy. Verifying income means the government thinks you've been overpaid by not reporting your income properly. So I basically contact Centrelink to find out what what I had to verify Um, and they asked me to provide payslips and bank statements for nearly two and a half years worth. And I said to them, look, it would be spread over two different banks um, and they were going to charge me to get statements from the bank that I wasn't using. And they quoted me about three to four hundred dollars to get those statements. So when I told them that I wasn't in a position to do that, they basically said that they were going to get back to me um, and if I owed money, I owed money. The government used an algorithm to identify and calculate debts, the now infamous robo-debt scheme. A side note here, an algorithm is simply a set of instructions. A baking recipe is an algorithm. We encode algorithms in computers to help them solve problems. Artificial intelligence is constructed from algorithms, but far more complex than a recipe for cookies. But we'll come back to that. The RoboDebt algorithm was used to serve debts to hundreds of thousands of Australians. Shane was one of them. So it was all up totaling $4,112. Well, it's terrible. I mean, you know, when you got other things from day-to-day life that you need to pay for and then you get told that you've got, you know... 
that on top of it, you know, just makes you wonder where you're going to get the money from. Shane believed he had done everything by the books. Oh, I was shocked. I mean, I, I always tried to make sure that I do the right thing. And like I said, I, I was, you know, meticulous with that. I would always write it down. Everything would be 100%. I'd go off my pay slips. Um, so then I, I thought in my mind that I was doing the right thing. Except it was the algorithm that was wrong. Using tax office info, it totaled Shane's annual income and averaged it out across the year. But some weeks, Shane would earn more, some weeks less, and receive more or less welfare accordingly. The algorithm did not account for that reality. Without access to his payslips, Shane was guilty until proven innocent. Well, it's very frustrating. I mean, you know, if you can't prove your innocence, um, that just makes you guilty, like a feeling of guilt. So, I mean, you know, you feel helpless. You don't, you don't feel like you can do anything. You've just got to pay it. Robo-debts were calculated by the algorithm, and letters were automatically created and sent by the same program. No humans were involved, and no one ever explained the decision to Shane. No, there's no letter that says how they come about the, uh, the, the amounts that they say that I owe. No one's explained. I, I have no, no clue how, how that it's, it's calculated or anything like that, no. It's one of the most difficult questions that has arisen in respect of AI. Ed Santo is the Australian Human Rights Commissioner. Because it's a fundamental principle of human rights that decision-making generally should be explained. So if you are the you know, recipient of a decision, a negative decision, be it from uh, the police, from Centrelink, whoever, from a bank, um, if you apply for, say, a bank loan, um, you should be told the basis of that decision, the reasons for that decision. And we would say that that's a legal principle that applies regardless of how you make that decision. So it will be really interesting to see as some of these cases start coming before the courts. A court has now ruled that it was illegal for the government to presume people guilty until proven innocent. There's a class action being led by Gordon Legal on behalf of the thousands of people who were wrongly served debts and who in many cases, like Shane actually paid part or all of it back to Centrelink. Shane believes it was wrong for the government to rely solely on the algorithm. 100% a a person should be involved. If they're just using algorithms as a way of charging people money or accusing people of owing money, it needs to 100% have some human intervention or at least checking Um, because, you know, you're asking people to pay money back. It's not a matter of you know, a simple uh, mistake that, you know, uh, is not going to cost anyone. This is costing people. AI will increasingly be involved in our lives, making more decisions faster about more people. It can have many beneficial applications. RoboDebt is not one of them. I think in terms of government service delivery, data matching isn't a bad thing. But if you wanted to build public confidence in data matching and smart delivery of government services, would you really come up with going after poor people and telling them you owe us money? Peter Lewis is the director of the Centre for Responsible Technology. Or would you maybe think, maybe if we want to build trust in this system, we'll run a program to identify benefits that people haven't claimed and you know, contacted you and say, hey, Dan, you know, there's $1,500 sitting here. Smart use of technology has delivered that for you. We'll send you the cheque. That shows what government can do if we use this technology in your interest. 
RoboDebt is an extremely crude algorithm. There are far more sophisticated versions of artificial intelligence. So, what else do we mean when we speak about AI? AI is the face of our new tech age. But we've been obsessed with the idea of a non-human consciousness, a scientifically created image in our own likeness, ever since Frankenstein's monster rose from the slab. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! We've awaited the dawn of AI as though expecting news reports of a cyborg opening its eyes. But it's hard to pinpoint the dawn as the sun slowly colours a night sky. AI has been infiltrating our society for years. If the question is, when is AI going to be all around us? It's like, well, it's kind of all around us now. Ellen Broad works at the 3A Institute here in Australia and wrote a book on artificial intelligence made by humans, the AI condition. So there's a few different ways into artificial intelligence. My shorthand is it's a constellation of technologies. There's another way of describing artificial intelligence, which is anything a machine can't do yet. Because once it can do that task, we give it another name, like search engine or drone. It ceases to be something mystical and intelligent sounding and just becomes another tool that is available to us. So that might be um, se- you know, uh, sensing you approaching a set of doors and opening those doors before you arrive. Putting your hands underneath the tap and dropping soap uh, into your hands before you wash them. AI senses and interacts with the world around it, mimicking intelligence. Soap dispensers and sliding doors might not seem at all intelligent, but just to put them in another context, say that of a hundred years ago, those devices would seem like thinking beings. As we said before, AI relies on algorithms to solve problems. The intelligent part is that it can change and give different results depending on changing situations. There are some very familiar examples. Whether that's helping negotiate traffic networks and optimising journeys for you. So, you know, using Google Maps, um, using train timetables that take into account delays elsewhere in the network, um, search engines, uh, recommendation platforms. It's around... like. We rely on tools and technologies that fit under the umbrella of AI every day. But the potential of AI is much greater than a few conveniences. In fact, we're sitting on the precipice of an AI revolution because AI is learning. Today, the power of artificial intelligence means... Massive quantities of digital-born data, large... Uh, increasing computer processing speeds that enable us to analyse that data very quickly and powerful methods for interpreting that data like machine learning, neural nets, etc. Here's a simple example. You can teach an AI program to recognise a picture of a cat. You feed in every picture of cats the internet has to offer. Millions of pictures later, the AI has learnt to successfully identify cats. In the same way, AI has learnt to play chess, identify cancers and drive, all 
better than humans because it has processed more data than a human could in many lifetimes. We're now increasingly using those AI programs to help us make decisions. So... Quite often when we talk about AI now, and particularly in popular culture, the kinds of like AI is coming to take all of your jobs, AI is going to um, say whether you're the right candidate for a job, they're usually talking about using large quantities of data to make predictions uh, about things, whether those things are humans or the natural environment or markets. It might seem that AI is perfectly placed to help us make decisions, especially where fairness is involved. How could a machine make a biased decision? Well, it turns out, in this regard, artificial intelligence is a lot more like its makers than we would like to admit. If you listened to our episode on privacy, you'll know Australia is on the verge of introducing facial recognition surveillance technology. Artificial intelligence powers facial recognition tech. But we do know that there are some weak points associated with facial recognition. Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santo again. One is that it is less accurate than probably anyone you know. Um, So uh, it it makes uh, errors uh, frequently. But secondly, those errors are not evenly distributed. So I am a white, middle-aged man. Uh, Facial recognition technology is particularly good at um, recognising the faces of people who look like me. Um, But if you don't happen to meet that description, it is much less accurate. And that's because uh, facial recognition technology tends to be um, trained on photographs of um, white men. And that is because the people developing the tech are mostly white men. A note, this is not due to ability. Here's the thing with AI. It's smart, but it can only learn from the data we give it. Remember the cat example? If you gave that same AI one picture of a dog, it would be completely lost. So if you happen to be a person of colour, or a woman, or a person with a physical disability, or or anyone in, in, in those sorts of categories, then you're much more likely to be... Um, affected by error when it comes to facial recognition. And when you think about um, the use of facial recognition in a situation where the stakes are really high and policing um, is clearly a context where the stakes in human rights terms are very high, then we should be really worried about that. Here's the kicker with artificial intelligence. It's capable of learning very quickly because it can process huge amounts of data. But we decide which data artificial intelligence gets to learn from. And when we do that, we make it that little bit more human. So we do embed values in AI all the time. It's impossible not to as a human designing a system because you will decide um, what you think the outcome is you want and what information you think helps you get to it. And those are based on a set of values. We are making us up. We're doing this. We are putting values in machines. And that we are not aware of the fact that we're doing it is alarming to me. And also, it's still about the machines and not about us having to be explicit about our behaviour. So we're still not really saying, well, what what are our values? What values should we be using? We're still, like, not to be scrutinised. 
With our modern day need for speed, the temptation to let AI make decisions for us at a superhuman pace is one we're giving into in more and more parts of our lives. Let's be clear, AI offers benefits. For example, it's learning to really successfully identify cancers. So which systems stand to benefit and which pose dangers? So I think that there is a real challenge that we're running up against, which is that we're building systems that allow us to be more efficient. That's the promise, that we can more efficiently allocate resources in a range of different ways, um, you know, on the basis of this information that we've had. And that works on historical data and information. Dr. Matt Beard is a fellow at the Ethics Centre in Sydney. That really runs up at odds with the whole basis of the legal system, which is that what's important is you as an individual and the things that you have done. You can only be held responsible for the things that you have done, not the things that you are likely to do, not the things that people who are close to you or look like you have done, that we are required not just to be equal before the law, but to be individuals before the law. Um, That is being pushed back by the, the scale platforms of predictive policing. Police forces in the Western world have moved away from the traditional model of reactive policing. Your home gets burgled, the police try to catch the culprits. Now we have a model of predictive policing. So it's been determined that police in the same amount of time can use computer programs to determine based on geography and past offending. They can pinpoint down to a suburb, a precise street, and they think they can predict when the next crime is going to happen. Dr Vicky Sentis is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law at UNSW. She specialises in police powers. So that sort of geospatial mapping has more recently moved to mapping individuals and not just suburbs. So the idea with proactivity is that you can look at patterns around suburbs and places where offending has occurred and then down to the individuals, um, a a predictive algorithm that they will um, offend again. Thanks mostly to her work, we now know about just such an algorithm that New South Wales Police are using to target their time and resources on individuals. It's called the Suspect Target Management Plan. So the STMP is a completely secret plan. So it operates on a number of levels. Uh, It's an algorithm. They look at a number of things, so prior offences, the number of times you've come into contact with the police. We know that some people have been put on the stomp because of getting in trouble as a kid, because of their associations. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're in an organised crime group, but you might associate with someone who's done time. Using the amassed data, police generate a score using the STMP algorithm. Once you're on the STMP life can become very difficult. David, which is not his real name, David was 15 years old at the time and he was put on the stomp. Um, He had prior convictions for theft offences but he didn't have any history of violence or violent offending. And so the majority of the police contact that David experienced was basically hanging out with his friends and 
David eventually couldn't go out uh, in public. There were police cars that were routinely parked outside his family home and being placed on the STMP also placed a huge amount of stress on his entire family. The STMP tells officers where to focus their attention because they believe the algorithm can work out where the next crime will happen. But of course, all they have to go on is historical data. And that historical data is skewed because there are some communities that have been over-policed in the past. And because um, incidences that the police have needed to respond to tend to correlate to things like social disadvantage, they tend to correlate to things like race, it does become the case that once you encode that within a system that tells the police where should they, they should spend their time, it tells them the things that are probably already happening um, and which don't necessarily represent the the best system if we had designed it at the outset without any of the systemic injustices or racial biases or anything like that. That's just a problem of bad data. Before he became the Human Rights Commissioner, Etzanto was a lawyer. He represented some of the people who ended up on the list. Of the... Um the 1,800 or so people on that list, 56% of them were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. And when you think that less than 3% of the New South Wales population is Indigenous, um, then something must have gone wrong. Now, we know that there's an algorithm that determines who's on the suspect target management plan. So if what is happening is that the algorithm is trawling through that historical criminal justice data and learning logically but wrongly that um, from from that data, that 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 you know, data which is subject to historical prejudice, that Indigenous people are more likely to commit crimes. Then of course the algorithm is going to throw up more and more Indigenous uh, people to go on that um, list for targeting. It's easy to ignore a program that does not affect the majority of us. Easier still if it's related to crime. But in a world where there is a mountain of data on every single one of us. We should be concerned that increasingly decisions are being made about us by algorithms and artificial intelligence using that data. At a certain point, um, you know, the one of the awful injustices that we see in our communities is that um, a number of social interventions, a number of technologies are often tested on our disenfranchised groups to begin with. They become the pilot studies. Um, and once it's proved to be successful based on whatever the metrics are there, and those metrics aren't always good ones, um, then it's more likely to be scaled, um, which is itself reflective of an injustice, but it's also a canary in the mine where we need to be paying attention to what's happening to disenfranchised communities and what they're experiencing, um, not just because it would be really bad that those things are happening in those communities, but also because at a certain point, that may well be what we are subjected to as well. The danger is that we trust these systems to operate without human oversight and intervention, believing that they will be fair. The STMP and RoboDebt provide chilling examples of what can happen when we do. The truth of the matter is that artificial intelligence, technology in general, are human creations, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The Robodet class action is ongoing. Shane has one hope. 
my hope is that even if I wasn't going to receive a refund, my ultimate, what would make me happy is for other people not to cop this. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if I had to wear it, but then this wouldn't happen to someone else, if they just stop using this AI is basically, you know, worth it. Thanks for listening to All Things Equal, a collaboration between the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. The podcast is produced by Dan Butler. Thanks to supervising producer Sharon Davis and Amelia Navasquez for sound design support. 2SER sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, country that was never ceded. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe or maybe give us a review so other people can find us. I'm Verity Firth. Till next time.